Well, it's been a fun couple of past months with the pandemic. Staying at home um, certainly has its pros as well as its cons. A lot of people have been taking up new hobbies. I know a couple of people that have been taking up woodworking. Um, my wife and my mother started to make bread, which is fun. Apparently making bread is very popular now, even though you know grocery stores are still open, but that's neither here nor there. I've started running again. Um, which you know is a thing. Running is not the most comfortable thing to do, but it's, it's good for you. And I recently found out that your body temperature goes up 20 degrees when you run. So that's why I'm sweating, no, no other reason. So that's what quarantine life has done f to me. It's a great way to stay active and physically healthy. Um, and that provides us with an interesting situation. Exercising, eating healthy, because we already have a body. All of us have bodies. We're physically present today. But for our health, we're told to exercise those bodies and we're told to eat healthy. If we stop exercising and stop caring about our health, we'll still have a body. We won't magically disappear, but that body won't last very long and we won't see much growth. So we'll never not have a body, but that body won't be very healthy. Don't worry, I'm, I'm not going to give a fitness talk. I'm using this as a metaphor to describe an aspect of our Christian life called sanctification. Sanctification. According to the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, sanctification is when we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Die unto sin and live unto righteousness. It's a change in our hearts, our thoughts, our motives, and our behavior to purify us and make us more Christ-like in holiness. So just as we'll always have a body we will always be saved and be a Christian. Sanctification isn't what saves you. It strengthens you. It makes you more holy and Christ-like, just like how fitness makes you healthier. Sanctification is the transformation that you see over time in your heart when you follow Christ rather than the sinful world, such as when you've turned away from an addiction that has held you hostage for years and years, or when you realize an error in the way that you have been perceiving God, so you repent and seek knowledge rather than just trying to prove yourself right, or when you attempt to mend a long-damaged relationship with love and humility rather than selfish one-upping, or when you realize that your speech and the words that you use have an immense effect on others, so you seek not to make insensitive or hurtful comments that could hurt someone who is a different gender or ace uh, race or age or economic class. You try to put yourself in the position of the hero as you speak. In all of these examples of sanctification, there was a heart change and there was an action done by us. The heart change portion can only be done by God. We read in the Bible that we had a heart of stone, but the Lord removed it and replaced it with a heart of flesh when he saved us. But the action part, the action part is our part. It's when you have that feeling in your gut, when you know that the Spirit is pushing you towards your sinful, pushing against your sinful flesh and pushing you towards holiness. That's the action part. And that action part is what we'll be talking about today and what Paul is discussing in our work. He describes it as work, good work. The work, good work, is our sanctification. So I'll make three points about sanctification from our passage today. Sanctification is continual, 
Sanctification is worship, and sanctification is God's work. So let's open up to Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. My first point is that sanctification is continual. Sanctification is continual. I get that from the first verse. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. So Paul understands and acknowledges that the Philippian church has been doing well in their sanctification. That's why he says, as you have always obeyed. We saw in the first chapter of this book that Paul thanks God for being even able to remember them in their partnership in the gospel. That's how deep his love is for them. He thinks of them so fondly, and that is why he wants to continue to encourage them forward. So if they're growing in the faith, if they're growing in love for one another and others and growing in knowledge, then why do they need to be encouraged? Because Paul knows the race isn't finished yet. Even though they have made great process in sanctification, it's not over yet. Early in Philippians, we get this line, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The good work in us is sanctification. It's described the same way in our passage today. The completion of that work is at the day of Jesus Christ. That is the day of his return. Before then, it's not completed. Until then, we are in constant need of sanctification. Another reason Paul knows that it's important to continue sanctification is because of the odds stacked against us. If you remember in my sermon a couple weeks ago, I spoke of three dangers in this world. Satan and his lies against us, the world in presenting easy sins, and our flesh which desires sinful things. Peter speaks of Satan this way in 1 Peter 5.8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Sanctification, therefore, because of what's against us, needs to be continuous. Just like how junk food and our desire to be lazy can undo our fitness work, our sinful adversaries would love to undo our work of our sanctification and drag us back into our old sins. So for example... One sin that we need to constantly be on the offense of is greed. Living here in America, we're told that the American dream is to have 2.5 kids in a white picket fence. But I'm often convinced that the real American dream is to make as much money as possible no matter what the moral cost. So we need to constantly check our hearts to see how greed is affecting us. When we get a new promotion or pay raise, or a co-worker gets a new promotion and pay raise, how is our heart affected by it? Are we envious just because they have more money than us? Do we desire more and more money? And if we are blessed with more money, whether that be in a new job or otherwise, is your desire still to glorify the Lord in word, action, and deed, or just simply to make more and more and more money? We read in 1 Timothy that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, 
and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Now don't hear this as money is bad, don't have money. Money is good. But what money does is it shows our sinful heart. It shows our sinful heart. And like I've mentioned before, sanctification is a heart change and an action done by us. So the heart change is understanding that money isn't the end-all, be-all. God is. Jesus says in Matthew 6, No one can serve two masters, for you will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So that's the heart part. And the action part done by us is using our money generously, knowing that God will provide to others, sometimes through us. Later in 1 Timothy, Paul continues that those who have a lot of money should not, quote, set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and be ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So the heart change aspect is to not desire to be rich. And the action is to set our hopes on God and to be generous and ready to share. This needs to be continuous as our bank accounts may fluctuate, but our faith needs to be rock solid. That's just one example of sanctification in our day-to-day lives. And as we've seen, a huge part of sanctification is the mending and growing of that new heart that God has given us. Consider what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sea of faith. Let me read that again. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's the goal of sanctification, love. Love in the way that the Bible describes it, not our own description of it. Love that is sincere, that considers others as greater than ourselves. How can we achieve that love if not for the Lord doing it in us by continually sanctifying us? So what about today in these discussions about race? We recently celebrated Juneteenth on Friday, which is the date of the final end of slavery in the U.S. And it's a constant discussion now. In these race discussions, sanctification will teach us that our aim needs to be first and foremost love. Love that is pure. Love that comes from a good conscience. And love that is based in sincere faith. That love is one that seeks to understand before being understood. One that is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, as James would say. We need to take every opportunity to check our hearts to see if that love is genuine or is being affected by our own sin. Every day we need to check. And it's always better to check our hearts first, as we know that the default of our sinful flesh is sin. Without sanctification, we would just continue in our sinful ways. But don't miss the last section of this verse. 
that Paul wants them to work on them being sanctified even more in his absence. That's what he says. Sanctification doesn't just happen in the church pew or folding chairs. It doesn't just happen when you're talking to a pastor as he confronts you on a difficult topic. It happens every single day as we are presented with the choice either to act in sin or to act in love. Sanctification pushes us to love, and we must work to choose that against our sinful default. Now, why do we do this? What encourages us to do this? My second point is that sanctification is worship. Sanctification as worship. I get that from the second verse where Paul says, sorry, the end of the first verse, where he says, So now, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So I'm going to focus on the fear and trembling here. What does fear and trembling mean, and why should it be a part of our sanctification? There are many examples of fear and trembling in the Bible in terms of actual fear and terror, such as when the shepherds appear to them, when they tell um, the shepherds, <laughs> when the shepherds saw the angels appear to them to tell them of Jesus' birth. By the way, the way that the angels are described in the Old Testament, if you've seen artist renditions of them, they are terrifying. They're terrifying. Or another example is when Isaiah has his vision of the Lord's throne room, and he's taught about holiness. He's terrified then. Both of those examples are fear in the Lord of who he is and his holiness and power, which contrasts directly with our sinfulness and our weakness compared to him. But what about when we know more about who God is? There's still fear, but instead of terror, it becomes more of respect and awe. Respect and awe. There's plenty of classic Bible examples discussing fears, respect, and awe. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the hatred of evil. Job says that the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Ecclesiastes says that the duty of man is to fear God and to keep his commandments. And Proverbs, again, calls the fear of the Lord the fountain of life. And the one who has the fear of the Lord has a strong confidence. Okay, so we know now that we need to have a fear of the Lord. And that fear is the one that Paul is talking about in our passage today. But how do we get that fear of the Lord? Fear of the Lord isn't necessarily started in your heart. It starts in your understanding of who God is. It starts in your understanding of who God is. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, as we learn in Revelation. God is the one who not only created us, who knit us together in our mother's womb, but created the earth and nature in which we gather in today. He created the heavens, a beautiful realm which we have yet to even see or comprehend. Our God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable and he is abundant in power. God's way is perfect. He is worthy to receive glory and power. God is love. And finally, Jeremiah says, the Lord is the true God. He is the living and the everlasting God. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. 
when you hear all that that the Bible says about our God, how can you not worship him when you hear all that? But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't. Because his creation, us, decided to follow sin rather than his way. We've seen that a lot, not only in current events, but also in years past in all of human history. And God decided, instead of punishing justly and rightfully judging all of creation, he gave us a way out of our sin and blessed us by electing us to take it. Paul says in Romans that God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, God died for us. God came to earth in the form of the man, Jesus Christ. He lived without sin and then took the world's penalty for sin on the cross. He rose from the dead three days later and promised that those who repent of their sins and put their faith in his sacrifice for their sins will not perish for their sins, but rather have eternal life with him. That really happened. When you do that, when you put your faith in Christ, then you get the Holy Spirit which sanctifies us. When we look at all that God is, and we look at all that God has done, regardless of our sinful state, it must lead us to worship and sanctification. It must lead us to humility rather than pride as we see how great our God is and how not so great we are. It must lead us to love and forgiveness as God has greatly loved and forgiven us. It must lead us to joy as our God has saved us from our sins. It must lead us to peace and self-control as our God is holy and commands us to live a more holy life. It must lead us to worship. Those are all examples of lifestyle changes that happen because of sanctification. And we've seen that sanctification happens with the reverence and the awe of who God is and what he's done for us. What God has done leads us and encourages us to make more godly choices and to let the Holy Spirit within us help us worship God by living in a way that glorifies him rather than our sins. That's what it means to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What fuels your sanctification is your worship of the Lord. That's what pushes it forward. But the Lord doesn't just encourage our work. It's ultimately his work. And that leads me to my final point. Sanctification is God's work. Sanctification is God's work. I get that from the final verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We get a couple of things from this short verse. God does the sanctification in us. God does it to change our will to his good pleasure. And God does it to change our work to his good pleasure. Notice how Paul introduces this at the very end. He builds the bucket, so to speak, about what sanctification is. And then at the end tells us how to achieve it. If he started this verse with, Sanctification is God's work, then we wouldn't be encouraged to seek out the worship that causes it. 
But by putting it at the end, we understand that we achieve it by not achieving it. God is the one who achieves it through us. It's his work in us. Now that doesn't mean that we're all puppets and we have no self-control. There is a divine relationship between our own free will and God's control over the entire world. As I mentioned before, God is the one that changes our hearts, and he does it when he saves us. That's God's work. God is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit when he saves us. That's his work. So when we choose holiness over sin, it's because the Holy Spirit is within us. Therefore, it's God's work. We couldn't choose holiness on our own. It's only because of God that we even have a desire to serve him let alone follow through with it. But this is very, 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 very good news. Because if sanctification were by our own accord, I'm very convinced that we wouldn't be able to complete it. But since it's the Lord's work that is in us, we know that it is work that will not falter. We know that because he and his kingdom are unshakable. At the end of Hebrews 12, we read, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's that phrase again, reverence and awe. The fact that God's kingdom cannot be shaken is yet another reason why we should worship our God by focusing on our sanctification. And because this is the Lord's work, that means that we need to understand that we will be sanctified to his requirements, not ours. That means that when changes are made to our lives, they will be making us more Christ-like and holy, rather than how we want to individually improve ourselves. Let me give an example. Let's say there's this guy, Sam. It's always tough to pick a name because there's always so many people in the church and I don't want to like pretend like I'm calling someone out. So if there's anyone named Sam here today, this isn't you. This is a fictional character. Sam. Let's say Sam has a problem with angry outbursts towards his family. He's out all night with friends and when he gets home, he yells at his wife and his kids for little trivial matters. All that he wants is for God to take away his angry outbursts. He wants to keep his unhealthy drinking habits. He wants to keep his friends and his lifestyle. But he just wants to keep a level head when getting upset. If this was Sam's work, then all that he'd want is just for those angry outbursts to be taken away. Like I said, keeping everything that's his is top priority. So is it really God's work then? Or is it just Sam's own self-improvement on his own terms? Think back to the definition I gave of sanctification. It is when we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. So considering that eliminating sin can only be done by God, sanctification needs to be done by him as well. Only God could have taken away our sins on the cross. Couldn't have done that ourselves. So sanctification has to be God's work because only he knows what's best for us. He knows that Sam's real problem isn't just outbursts of anger. It's only a symptom of a much larger problem, pride. You see, 
Sam only wants to get rid of his anger because he knows that it upsets his wife and kids. He doesn't want to get rid of all the other things because he's too prideful. He doesn't even want to apologize for what he's done because then he'll be admitting that there's a problem to even begin with, one that's bigger than he's willing to admit. You see, his constant drinking takes away filters in his mind, which lead to anger. His friends encourage his behavior by letting him get upset without challenging him. His lifestyle allows him to be valued above everything else. So it kind of makes sense for him to get angry when he doesn't get what he wants or when his family acts in a way that he doesn't like. Look at the final verse again. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Sanctification changes our will and our work to be pleasurable to God. It's not just a band-aid for things we want to get rid of. Sam wants to get rid of his angry outburst so he won't get in trouble. Not because he wants to plead God. Please, God. That's not what sanctification is about. Just treating the symptoms doesn't get rid of an infection. Sam doesn't just need to get rid of his angry outburst. He needs to change his heart to desire God instead of the things that lead him to those outbursts. If he valued God more, then he would understand, he would acknowledge, and he would obey what God says for a godly man to treat his family, to treat his wife, to treat his kids. If he valued God above everything else, then he would listen and obey when God says not to have unhealthy drinking habits. If he valued God more than everyone else, then he would understand and heed what I mentioned before, that we need to consider others as greater than ourselves, not the other way around. Now, God does this because he knows that our sins are not only on the outside, but fueled by what's on the inside. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, For the Lord sees not as the man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. We know that if we keep our solutions to our sins only skin deep, then we'll be able to change without losing what has caused us to sin in the first place. But God knows the deeper problem and knows that it may be difficult, it may be hard, but it is worth it because it glorifies him, sanctifies us, and leads us to truly love and serve one another. So what is the work that you wish God would do in your heart? In what ways have you not been willing to work for his good pleasure? Sometimes it's not as obvious as angry outbursts. Sometimes it's lustful glances or lustful fantasy. Sometimes it's feelings of superiority based on race, gender, or money. Sometimes it's a desire to be rich and famous rather than loving and faithful, as I've mentioned before. All of these are symptoms of a sinful and broken heart which needs to be sanctified by the Lord. And once sanctification in one area is done, when you're free from a sin that has been tangling you up for years, even decades, then you can truly experience the freedom that God calls us to. And you'll know that what you had to give up was totally worth it. You can be free from your sin. 
Christ died and rose again to make that possible. But God needs to do it on his terms because he only knows how truly sinful our hearts are. He knows that the uncomfortability and the loss of lifestyle is a fair price to pay for a changed heart. The Christian life of sanctification won't be comfortable, but it's the one we're called to. And it is holy, and it will be worshipped to our God. That's why Christ says, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? We don't have what it takes to take up our cross. That's why sanctification is God's work. Because only he knows how to fix our sinful hearts. And only he can do it with fixing us with sanctification. So in conclusion, the best thing that we can do to kickstart sanctification is to admit that it's the Lord's work in us. Pray for the Lord to search your heart. Surrender yourself to him. And thankfully, in the Psalms, we get a pretty good template. Follow the example of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. These verses perfectly encapsulate a desire to know God's will and to work for his good pleasure. May that be our attitude with sanctification. So seek the Lord in his kingdom. He has saved you for good work, and that good work is the sanctification of your heart. Trust him to complete that work. So we've seen three aspects of sanctification today. Sanctification is continual. Sanctification is worship. And sanctification is God's work. All of this is how God changes us to be better representatives of him for his glory, which leads us to worship. So let us worship our God, who not only saves us from our sins, but continually frees us of them in the work of sanctification. Let's pray. Father God, we praise your name for sanctification. We praise your name for that good work in us where you continually transform us to be more and more holy. Lord, we praise your name that saving us is not a one-time deal. We're saved, but then you continually save us from our sins. You continually save us from ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, which allows us to happen. And we thank you for this church, for your church, your global church, which helps us with encouragement and sanctification. Lord, we pray now that you would sanctify the body. We pray that you would sanctify us in action and in heart. We pray that you would do this for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.